Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is the last episode of Talking Politics. I'm with Helen Thompson, our producer Catherine Carr, and we're going to be talking a bit about the past, the present and the future. Talking Politics has been brought to you for the last five years in partnership with the London Review of Books, who are mourning the end of the podcast the only way they know how. With one last unbeatable subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners, get six issues, that's three months of the LRB, where I'll be continuing to write about politics and more, for just £6 by using the URL lrb.me slash talk6. That's lrb.me slash talk6. Because this is our last episode, the first thing that we wanted to do was to dedicate it to Finbar Livesey and Aaron Rapport. Finbar and Aaron were dearly loved colleagues of ours, and many listeners may not have heard their voices. They both died tragically young in the summer of 2019, and we wanted to remember them. They have to suck it up. And this is one of the fragile moments, I think, for the electoral process in America. If they don't suck it up, they're basically saying all bets are off. It's not a Cold War question, right? It's a current events question. And I think we oftentimes think of this debate as somewhat historical. It is historical in in that it should be informed by history, but it's very much contemporary, especially as the United States and Russia and China are all thinking about ways of modernizing their arsenals, making them more accurate, making them more protectable, making them more usable in a way. Hearing those two clips does make me feel as I've often found myself thinking what would Finbar make of the the world now, of Partygate, of craziness in American politics, of the chaos of supply chains after the pandemic, all of the stuff he was so interesting about. And then I'd love to know what Aaron would think about Putin now. I was thinking last week after the invasion that Pretty much my first clear memory of Aaron in this department was during the Crimean crisis. And I remember the urgency and moral seriousness with which he took the situation and discussing a conversation in which we discussed nuclear weapons and Putin's psychology. And yeah, he was thinking about the things that have turned out to be pretty important. The Crimean crisis was 2014. We started podcasting in 2015. We're coming to an end now. We've done six and a bit years of podcasting in total and and five and a half years of talking politics. And we're ending in the middle of, I don't know what you, I mean, I don't know what you think, in the middle of a crisis, which I think is on a different scale than anything we've talked about before. It almost feels like those six years, which seemed so frenetic and so full of politics and so full of pretty wild moments, it almost brackets them a bit from Crimea to now, this crisis it's on a different scale. I don't know, I feel like there was something odd about, there's always going to be something odd about coming to an end of a podcast that we've been doing every week for six years, trying to talk about the world as it unfolds. None of us had any idea that we would be stopping in the middle of this, but this doesn't, this is a different scale. Yeah, I mean, we obviously have talked about some wars during the time that we've been doing this podcast. We talked about the war in Yemen at some point, I seem to remember but we certainly haven't been talking about a war in Europe and in some sense I don't think we should be so surprised because in that year before we started 
talking about politics either spring of 2015, the year before that, was the Crimean crisis. It did involve Russia using its military power to change the territorial borders of Europe, at least de facto. In some sense, we shouldn't be so surprised. We already lived, I think, in the world that we now do. It just feels very different when it actually involves a war in which European cities and European citizens are being killed in the way in which they are at the moment in Ukraine. I don't mean to try to minimise what's going on in other parts of the world by saying that, but we are who we are, we Europeans, and this is hard to comprehend, even though I think that we're culpable because it's been such a shock. One of the things I've found myself reflecting on is the number of times over the six years plus of this podcast that I've tried to make the argument that it's not the 1930s. And particularly in relation to Brexit and Trump and the anxieties about populism in the West. What people saw is the family resemblance between 21st century politics and pre-Second World War politics, the rhetoric, some of the scary language. And I said very often this is not the 1930s, this is a big mistake, it's a kind of category error. We should remember that our societies are fundamentally different, our democracies are different, and we should be worried about different things. And now here we are back in the 1930s. I mean, this war, so much of it, So much of what we see, so much of what we hear is horribly redolent of a much, much earlier politics. Armoured divisions descending on and besieging potentially European cities, civilians taking up arms. I mean, we're getting a different kind of coverage of it, but this is the 1930s. And so was I wrong? I mean, yes, in many ways I was wrong. But what I really feel... And I guess because this is the last podcast, I should say it. It more feels like it was the wrong argument to be having. I mean, I think it's important. I think it was important to say there was a lot of hysteria around Brexit and Trump. And one of the things I think we tried to do was step back from that a bit and give a sense of historical perspective. I think if we did anything on this podcast, it was to try and offer some historical perspective. But the world moves to different timeframes. You know, it's not like 2022 is one place in history. We're not in the 1930s. I don't think we ever were. But we're not the world. And actually, what it feels like now is there's this collision of overlapping historical frameworks for politics. Uh, It's obviously a collision of more than that. It's a collision of worldviews. It's a collision of political wills. It's a collision of arms. But there have been periods in the last six years where I think entirely understandably, we were often wrapped up with what was going on in in Britain and the United States. And it was all consuming at various points. And indeed, the world was watching at various points. But other things were happening too. And Helen, you've always struck me as the person uniquely, really, who saw that. I don't think I saw it. What was going on underneath, as it were, our experience of history in Britain, in the West, is not history. Uh, It's not the whole world. Our time frame is not everyone's time frame. Our idea of, you know, what the problems are and the, the space in which they have to be solved. You know, if you think about the timeframes around Brexit, for instance, often really rapid, seemingly very dramatic, everything at stake. And looking back on it now, a lot of it was froth. You know, I thought that in time, in the big scheme of things, that Brexit would look like a, a footnote of the, the middle of the 2010s. And Obviously, there's some sense in which that that isn't true because you know Brexit did have you know a tremendous effect on so many people's lives, including our lives. So I, I don't say that because I want to minimise in terms of what it meant as an individual um, experience. Nonetheless, it was it seemed to me clear that bigger things were going on 
including in 2016 itself. And that I think that we already did by then live in the in the Europe that Putin was shaping or trying to shape, I should say, in, in one way or another, both because of what had happened in, in Crimea in 2014, but also because the way he was laying what seemed to me a, an energy trap for European countries um, around the way in which he was dealing with the pipelines issue. But I still think that there's something uh, in which we need to think, all of us need to think about what our relationship to this historical time is. And I mean, I would like to make, in a way, one more plea to this isn't the 1930s, because the 1930s was not a nuclear age and we live in the in the age of, of of nuclear weapons, and I think that there was some sense in a lot of of discourse, at least in Western Europe, that somehow the Cold War brought that age to an end. And actually, I remember really quite clearly. I think it, was, it must have been during the the Crimean crisis in two thousand and fourteen that I was supervising a group of my first year um, Claire students, and we were doing a, a topic on nuclear weapons and I remember being really struck by the fact that they weren't frightened by nuclear weapons whereas I still carried my sort of fears of being a teenager in the in the 1980s around with me and I think that what we in some sense lacked perhaps was a sense of like continuous history of the sense of what actually came with us from the Cold War years into the post-Cold War um, years and this desire that Many people, I think, in liberal democracies have to chop history up, sort of say, OK, this is the 1930s repeating itself, or this is some other decade repeating itself and forgetting, which is a point, I think, the way you just said, is is that actually it's always there. You're never jumping off. I don't know whether train's the right metaphor, but <laughs> you're never jumping off the, the, the train of history and trying to see what is happening, what's significant while it's actually happening, that that's pretty difficult. I still think we've got not a right, that's the wrong way, all of us, to be shocked by what's happened. And I think that even those reading what what I can, that even people in Russia who are pretty sympathetic to Putin's foreign policy where Europe's concerned, pretty anti-Western, pretty anti-NATO, have been quite shocked by the scale of what he's done rather than just concentrating on, say, taking the Donbass uh, fully into Russia or establishing a, a land connection with Crimea, that this is something where he's trying to achieve regime change, to use the language that Shashank used when we talk to him. But in some sense, I also still think it's a, like a, a wake-up call that how thing, big things were happening that we didn't necessarily concentrate on in the right way. Just before we bring in Catherine to talk about the experience of podcasting through this tumultuous period, I want to tell one more anecdote about students, though much older students. In 2012, I had to give a talk to a gathering of alumni in Cambridge, and it was the class of 1962. And I was giving a talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So these were students who arrived in Cambridge in 1962, October 1962, the month of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest that the world has ever come to being destroyed. By nuclear Armageddon, I wasn't born then. uh, So they lived through it and I didn't. So I thought it was a bit weird that I was giving them a talk about it. They should have been giving me a talk about it and telling me what it was like. They were in their 70s by that point. So I gave my talk and tried to explain some of the context and some of the things I was thinking about in historical hindsight. But then I finished and I said to them, but really, it would be much better for me to hear from you. What was it actually like? 
I mean, what was it like arriving in Cambridge when the world was ending? And they said almost to a man, and they were all men, because Cambridge then was, this college at least, was all male. We can't remember. We don't remember anything about it. Was the world coming to an end? We remember arriving in Cambridge. We remember going to the bar. We remember going to the Freshers' Fair. We remember going to the Cambridge Union. One of them said, I remember there was one night where we were joking, the world's probably going to end tonight. But they missed it. (laughs) Or at least 50 years later, they couldn't remember it. And I often think of that, the weirdness of what it is to live through these experiences, what it is to have our own parochial concerns. And then I said, and also you'll remember in the same time frame, China and India went to war. And they looked at me like I was talking about something that had happened on Mars. They'd never heard of the Sino-Indian War of 1962, though they lived through it. God knows what this will look like in 50 years' time. <laughs> Catherine, what's your kind of main feeling about the, the experience of podcasting through this tumultuous time? You were the one who said this is perfect for podcasting. I remember you saying <laughs> this is a great time to do a politics podcast. I don't think any of us knew. Uh, this was, you know, we started with the British general election of 2015. Then we went through Brexit, Trump. 2017 election, mm. 2019 election. We had a lot of those mornings where we, I don't know what you thought, whereas we showed up morning after morning after an election going, oh, yeah. Uh, hmm. um, what did I think? Um, side note, I don't think I knew if it was a perfect time to start or not. I just thought it sounded like fun, and it has been a lot of fun. I would want to say one thing about what Helen said. My memories of talking politics are kind of bracketed by the age that my kids were when we started and when they ended. And I think that says something about political consciousness and the times that you become politically conscious in. And when I reflect on that as the 90s for me, and then I think about the pandemic and now the war for my children who are now teenagers. I always remember something Helen said back in 2020, the spring, that we've been firmly put back in history. And that has coloured what was something fun and an adventure to start with and made it seem quite important when we finished it this podcasting yeah it was and it has been I mean it has been fun even through the pandemic yeah it was fun it's <laughs> I mean it's and I know some people have sometimes responded to our podcast I remember I think it was the morning after Brexit mm. where we got a bit of criticism for the for not being more upset you know like and I just remember just being fascinated. I mean, part of it is, which is why, in a way, today is harder. Brexit, Trump, Corbyn, we shouldn't forget Corbyn. I mean, there were the stakes were high and what's going on at the moment in the world is, God, I wouldn't want to suggest it's unrelated to any of those things, but of course it is, particularly, I would say, to Trump. There was a kind of sense that we were watching unfolding a really fascinating story. I mean, a really surprising and fascinating story with lots of twists and turns. God, the story today is grimmer than that. I have to say, I I don't remember um, much fun from 2019 or 2020. One of the things that was true about talking about Brexit, which is probably what we ended up talking about more than anything else, is that it got harder and harder as it went on. And it was particularly hard that summer and autumn of 2019. So from Johnson becoming prime minister through to the, the winter election, and there was something, I think, I think we even had an episode, didn't we, about winter elections, of of that being indicative of, like, something going wrong. Uh, and indeed, my and my first memory of a, a general election in Britain is the winter election of February of, 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 of 1974 during those power cuts. So I think there was a sense in which that how complicated Brexit was and the toll that it took on the United Kingdom's politics and the, the future of the 
the, the union. That made us get more and more serious about it as we went on. I'm not trying to suggest that we weren't serious to begin with, but I'm just saying that I think that both of us ended up, or not just you and you and I, but the other people who were contributing to those discussions. In some sense, we had to learn our way through Brexit. We had to learn more in order to be able to, to keep talking about it and trying to add something. The pandemic was then pretty difficult because we didn't, in some sense, know what we're talking about, about the politics of pandemics, <laughs> um, because we'd never been there before. And this kind of war seems like very different, for me anyway, because of the way in which it involves, or at least possibly involves, a, a nuclear threat. It, it does establish some, like, continuity with the formative years of, you know, like growing up in the 70s and, and the 80s. But having said that, I still don't think that we should underestimate just how unprecedented a, a juncture that this is, because we're now in a in a situation where we've not only had a, a territorial invasion of a, of a European country in Ukraine, but the reaction of both the United States and the European Union, or all of the United States, the European Union, and the United Kingdom has been, you know, to get quite close. Energy being obviously the big exception to declaring economic war against Russia and we've not really been in a world in which I think that kind of economic pressure in fact we just haven't been in a world in which that kind of economic pressure has been put against a a nuclear power so I'm not sure that history is much guide to us at the moment. So I feel bad that I said it was fun to do it during the pandemic but I don't know Catherine what you think of it and obviously we had to do it remotely I mean the big shift with this podcast we're here in person we're talking in person now in case people can't tell but We've only just, just been able to start doing that. And we did many, many, many episodes from March 2020 onwards remotely. It meant we could talk to all sorts of people around the world in a way that we couldn't before. 2019, it was all a bit fraught politically, but I still remember kind of just that feeling that I often got with this podcast coming in to do it on a Wednesday morning. First of all, that I would learn a lot. Um, But secondly, that it was so unpredictable. I didn't, I was lost in in politics in 2019. I couldn't understand the way through for Johnson and prorogation of parliament and all of that. And to be able to talk about it was, I found it deeply enjoyable. I mean, genuinely. Yeah. And look, no one's coming to me for political hot takes, but I do think people did enjoy being in the muddle with us, whatever the muddle was. And, And that's what I meant by fun wrong word maybe and actually even with the pandemic and I think the pandemic different from this current crisis and this war it's really helpful even when talking about it to get distance and that that sort of you know like Helen said none of us knew I mean being locked down and what is the politics of that god knows none of us understood really about the disease and we were able to talk to people who would help us understand it but there was a you know a real benefit uh, even just for the people who were having the conversations from being able to take a step back and try and put it in some historical perspective and and get some distance from it. This current crisis, it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that one wants to just take a step back and get distance from. Partly we're right, right in the middle of it. I mean, we, we, we couldn't be. I've spent the morning reading, trying to read up on it, and I feel completely lost, but not in a way that I want to take a step back from it. And that also is different. I can't think of, I, I've said this before, the one night that completely freaked me out in the whole of the past six years before the night when Putin invaded Ukraine, which was just a week ago, was the night that Trump got elected. So everyone had different takes. Some people were much more freaked out by Brexit. Some people were much more freaked out by the prorogation of Parliament. Some people were much more freaked out when the pandemic hit, watching Johnson say, you've got to stay in your homes. My sort of 20 minutes of existential dread was the night when I realised Trump was going to be president of America. But it only lasted about 20 minutes. 
<laughs> this is lasting more than 20 minutes. One way of looking at it, I suppose, then, is that we were the podcast for that time and we're not the podcast for this time. And that's not going to be an answer that satisfies a lot of people who have, in air quotes, enjoyed the conversations that we've had. But I think that's the best way that we could describe it, maybe. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the weekend, I saw the last six years described as the perma-crisis. And, you know, like Helen, I remember growing up in the 70s, uh, which is a bit of a perma-crisis decade. And there was the, you know, the overarching threat of Cold War conflict hanging over our childhoods. And I remember my older sister coming downstairs in tears because she'd been watching the news and the Russians had invaded Afghanistan in 79. And she was completely freaked out. Totally understandably, she saw these tanks, you know, on the nine o'clock news, whatever it was, rolling into Afghanistan, and she wanted to ask my mum and dad whether we were going, to, whether there was going to be a nuclear war. And I remember that really, really vividly. But Catherine, like you're saying, for you know, kids who are growing up now, this sort of perma crisis, it's on a different scale, not the Trumpy, Brexity bits, but really the last two and a half years. And people haven't said much about the fact that this the biggest crisis of all is is the you know the first post in a way post covid i mean we're still bang in the middle of covid but the first post covid event i think the last 2 to 3 years in that perma crisis sense are different from yeah. anything before and that we've been talking about something that's just different from before and if you think of all those young people who are supposed to be rattling through those life stages that come thick and fast between early teens and mid-20s and how they've had those sort of obliterated by the pandemic yeah I think it is very different but I, I would also say your sister watched the nine o'clock news my kids are watching tiktok videos by russian soldiers on the front line so they're consuming a rolling diet of young people to young people across border. And I, I find it sort of heartening and sort of frightening that that's how they're witnessing it. But they feel like they have a lot in common with the people that live on their phones. And they're having conversations and experiences that... So, so for them, I think it will be a very different coming to consciousness because it will be done on social media. I don't want to belabor that 1962 anecdote that the people who were students back then... But you know, the, the thing that they all said was, insofar as we were aware of it, we were just waiting to be told X or Y. There was no rolling coverage of it or anything like that. There were newspapers, but they were living a really what we would now think of as closeted existence in, in Cambridge. And even in our childhood, it really was the news on telly, you know, reading the paper. It was remote. And for all of us, not just for teenagers, this, I mean, the coverage of this war over the last week, I feel it's both very familiar because nobody knows what's going on and there's massive overinterpretation and people jumping to conclusions left right and center that they know this who's winning who's losing you know we're drowning in not just disinformation but misinformation i mean just sort of things presented in information that aren't never mind all of the propagandizing but my god compared to when we were kids it's just relentless it is but i still think that there's a sense in which if you sort of had the television news on each night or the radio on you know, during the, the day, there was a, a relentless 
it felt like anyway for me like a, a, a relentless series of like bad news that's what there's that's what you know, I, I remember I mean I, I'm pretty sure the first things I remember from like radio's pocket spits about um, how badly things were going for the Americans in Vietnam say so, so there was this sort of sense in which there were a success I think I think perhaps you end up with more of a sense of that there's a succession of events but I also think and I and I do think this will perhaps matter for the present young generation left at least me but I can think of that of people other well, my peers of like wanting to understand the, the couple of decades before that world so being very interested in the 1960s, for instance, being very interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Not that the Cuban Missile was a Cuban Missile Crisis was a prelude to the energy crisis of the 70s, say, but that sense in which you are living in a world that the decades before you have made. I think that people, younger people today, will want to understand how they've ended up living in this world, which is not, in some sense, what their parents led them to believe was likely to be. It's important that we understand that there was something, I think, illusionary about the way in which uh, life in Western Europe played out after the, after the Cold War and after the end of the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I, I think that in some sense that what's happening now is part of that reckoning for the fact that what happened in 1989 in terms of the way that Soviet rule ended in Eastern Europe and then what happened in 1991 in terms of the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union was so extraordinary. There was no historical precedent for something like the territorial entity like the Soviet Union breaking up with so little suffering as a consequence, so little geopolitical fallout as a, a consequence. It wasn't going to stay like that. History in some sense was going to have its say and it's having its say now. I think one thing that we have in common is that we all love radio. And Catherine, you, you know, you've worked extensively in radio. And part of the thrill for me of doing this podcast is like we got to make our own audio. And that is a continuity actually from my childhood. I'd forgotten that until Helen said it, that most of the news was radio. And there's an intimacy to spoken word news. And yeah, I can remember as a kid listening to the radio under the bed sheets. Usually it was sport, but you know, occasionally it was news. One of the things that we found doing this podcast is that there is a there is a way of sort of connecting with a a listenership, which is a bit different from people who see you or the students that we speak to. It's more intimate. I th yeah, and I think it's a question of perspective. You've described the nine o'clock news when you were a child, and you're talking about the news, which is either editorialised or not, or it's the BBC. You don't get first-person narratives. And then we had whatever we had next, and then we had podcasting. And there's a different perspective again, and we strove to be a little bit different from what was on the radio. It was supposed to be like a discussion that you just happened to be eavesdropping in on and I think that's very exciting and it will continue that sort of perspective and that sort of audio offering and I'm I'm happy about that I'm happy to have played a part in it. So one of my memories I don't want this to be too nostalgic but when I realized the way that news changed was the first Gulf War that was the first time that it was Radio 4 Longwave went to rolling news it was a new thing and they went to a sort of 24-hour news cycle that was 1991 and the two things I remember from that was I used to listen to the radio all the time. I remember hearing that the sort of as breaking news that the operation to liberate Kuwait had begun during a football match. I was listening to football commentary and I think it was Alan Green, who was the commentator, broke off to say the war has started. And then I was listening to Radio 4 Longwave and they were discussing the war and they broke off with breaking news to tell us that Kenny Dalglish had resigned as manager of Liverpool. And I just thought, 
these worlds are coming together now. This is a kind of interlocking of, of all of the stuff that I'm interested in back then, which was football and politics. But it was sort of, this was going to be a new pervasive information environment in which everything connects to everything. That's part of our opportunity has been to talk in that space. We've tried to make these kind of connections. But of course, the downside of that is it just can be overwhelming. Sometimes these conversations have felt a bit overwhelming because it's so hard. It's just so hard. You're better at this than me, Helen, to keep it in your head, <laughs> everything that's going on. At times, I have to say, it's been utterly overwhelming to the point of making it hard to know what to think. It's even hard to know what to feel because when you've got to analyse and you've got to keep having opinions about things and having something to say runs the risk of being the end in itself um, rather than actually thinking about it and trying to get it into um, proper proportion and perhaps sometimes even into proper ethical proportion. I've got one more question for Helen. It relates to what we've been talking about the last five, six years, this permacrisis, let's call it that. At some point, that too will be history. People will be looking back on it. It seems to have at least the potential of a, a moment that singles a shift to something else in the last week, if this is a, a different order of crisis that we're going through at the moment. And it might bracket it. You know, there might as well be a sense that that period, which runs from 2015 or 2014 to now, was a distinct period in, in the history, the geopolitical and the political history of the world. Or that this is all sort of part of a you know the seamless sweep of history that these arbitrary breakpoints are too arbitrary and that the time that we've been on this podcast discussing politics british politics american politics we've talked about french italian and german politics we've tried to make sense of where climate and energy questions fit into this we've tried to talk more broadly about the fate of democracy you know we've talked a lot about technology we haven't mentioned that today all of these things that you, you can't bracket them in that way you know you, they all run underneath. And I think, you know, we talked about it last week, Helen, in relation to your book, there are these deep underlying themes. And we, we're responding to what's going on on the surface and then trying to connect it underneath. Is this six year period likely to be one that is bracketable? Or do you think it's just like all of this? It's there's a sort of seamless flow of history running through it. And as you were saying, when you were younger, you wanted to know where did this come from? Where is it heading? You know, not what did the last six years mean? But where does it fit into something much bigger than it? Yeah, I'm a bit torn on this because on the one hand, I think that there is a, a long history to this moment. I couldn't have you know, written my book if I didn't think that that were the case. And so I, I think there is a continuum from the way in which the Soviet Union ended in particular uh, and going back before that, the relationship between Soviet Union and the European countries over energy, which itself can't be separated from the relationship between the West European countries and the United States and NATO. There's a, there's a long and complicated history to some of the things that we're seeing playing out um, at the moment. It wouldn't be possible also for the United States in targeting the kind of financial power that it is at Russia at the moment without the world that you know, internationalised finance started to create from the, the 1970s. So in, without a continuous history, we can't understand where we are. On the other hand, it seems to me that so much has changed in the last week. And I don't just mean the fact that Ukraine's been invaded, but in terms of what that's put into play, Germany has quite literally upended its entire foreign policy over the last 50 years, You know, going back to the Ostpolitik that Willy Brandt brought in. Everything that Merkel was about in foreign policy terms in Europe has basically been repudiated. And that raises a really big question as to, well, it's the same thing in a few years' time going to happen to the German-China economic relationship, which 
isn't about energy, but in other ways goes much deeper than the German-Russian relationship. Macron, uh, you know, has been wanting, at least for the last few years, he was talking about this in 2019, to reground the entire European project, as he saw it, on an accommodation, a new understanding with Russia that he cast in quite explicitly at times civilizational terms. Again, completely gone. What is going to happen if some rump Ukrainian state ends up being taken into the European Union, given the, the position of the, the state of the Euro, Ukrainian economy? You would have said, well, that can't happen before this, but maybe, maybe it can. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is um, at all. But what I'm trying to say is, is there seems to me so much that has just been thrown up into the air by this before we even get into the we're now in a world in which very powerful economic sanctions can be used against a, a nuclear um, power that to say i think it's possible that this is a, a new junction that something ended and something else is about to begin particularly if it has perhaps consequences for the internal politics of russia you know, in one sense, I just like throw my hands up and say, I just, I, 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 I don't, I don't understand. I think it's too early to even begin to try to um, understand. And, and maybe it is the beginning of something new. And the line will be drawn here and say, you know, that in February two thousand and twenty-two, the world fundamentally changed, turned. But I don't know. All I would say is that we had as our tagline Corbyn Brexit Trump, and now that looks dated. I mean, it really does look dated, looked dated, frankly, a couple of years ago. And we had a bit of a chat about whether we could come up with a new one. And at one point, I think we were thinking of Cummings COVID climate as our tagline. Uh, three completely different timeframes. Cummings is uh, short term, I hope, as a central theme of politics. That stuff is not of deep historical significance. COVID is of deep historical significance, but it is bracketed in time. And then climate is of overwhelming significance. and It does not have a time bracket around it. You know, you couldn't say Cummings, COVID climate sums up the last few years either. And if that were had to have become our tagline, the last week would have drawn a line under it. I mean, completely. The COVID issues cut across what's happened in the last week. And I think in all the welter of commentary, there hasn't been enough about how this is an event that comes out of the last two years. There's been psycho stuff about how Putin locked himself away in the Kremlin archives and was looking at the maps while he was isolating. You know, But just the world has changed fundamentally anyway in the last two years. The sense of political possibility and political risk has changed. And we're now living with that. Clearly, climate issues cut across the whole of what's gone on in the last week. But Cummings, COVID, climate would not capture the world that we're moving into, which has been redrawn. It's never a good time to end. I mean, in many ways, it's a terrible time to end. But also, if that's true, there are worse times to end than this, I think. I mean, I can say for all of us, we have loved it. I've loved it. Six years is a long time. We've been doing it recently, not every week, but often once, twice, sometimes, I think, three times a week when the world was really kicking off, as we thought back then, turned out, maybe not. It's really been a privilege we want to thank everyone who's taken part in this podcast. So lots and lots of people. Every week I learned something doing this podcast. Every week. And that was the thing I most enjoyed about it. I was always better informed and I had a better understanding, or I hope I did, from the things that people said. Uh, so many people have contributed to it and it would be nothing without any of them. So many people have helped us make it and we want to thank them too. And we want to thank everyone who listened. We've been really touched by the messages that we've had over the last month particularly from people you know, who haven't been able to get to school or university, who've sort of taken something from this podcast that they said during the last couple of years has, has helped them. We, 
we value those messages enormously and all the feedback that we've had over the last six years people have said some fascinating things to us too we did a lot of live events you know we've had really great interaction with listeners so we're profoundly grateful and we also wanted to say that uh, we have a lot of episodes and they are not going anywhere so the archive will be available probably the best way for now anyway to get all of our episodes is on our website talkingpoliticspodcast.com you can see them all there we know that some of the stuff we've done has been used um, in schools and elsewhere and we hope that the value will still be there you know it's in a way It relates to what we've been talking about today. It's a historical record of a really weird time, including some people trying to understand things that they didn't understand in real time. And then as it twists and turns through the Brexit story, we haven't even mentioned today, through the whole question of Anglo-Scottish relations, the future of the Union, Northern Ireland, the politics of the European Union, the politics of the United States, America-China relations energy, technology, all of that. We hope that we're going to be able to organise the archive in due course to bring out these themes so that they're more easily findable if people want to listen to a series of episodes where you hear people in real time working their way through the muddle, as Catherine said, you know, getting through the confusion. That will be available too. So Talking Politics will still be there. The archive will still be there. Hope people will still be able to access it and enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed making this podcast. It's been a privilege. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. it's going to be quite it's better than I think it's going to be okay <laughs> that's the outtake don't press did you get that yes okay can we have that can we leave that in yes thank you